Welcome to The Sacramentalists, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. We're your hosts. I'm Father Wesley Walker. And I'm Father Miles Hickson. And I'm Father Creighton McElveen. Well, welcome, guys. It's, we're starting a new season. It's good to be back with you all. Yeah, it's good to sit down digitally and see your faces on the screen. And I'm um, excited to talk about some good stuff this season. Great. Did you all have good good Christmases? I, Miles, you and I talked a little bit about it in the last episode. Father Creighton, how was your Christmas? Uh, my Christmas was a little bit uh, not, non-traditional and full of COVID. So it was... Uh, we made do with what we had. We uh, sadly missed being with family and all of those sorts of things. So we had to open presents and stuff on, you know, via FaceTime, and which was a little bit unfortunate. But my uh, my mother decided she was gonna bring Christmas dinner over to our house and give us cooking instructions and put it in a box on our front door, which was really nice. So we had we had some some Christmassy things, but we never even got a chance to finish decorating the house. So like the tree never had ornaments on it and it all just kind of went by the wayside. It was a very Charlie Brown Christmas for you. Yeah. <laughs> and isn't your mom, doesn't she make a beef Wellington around Christmas that you say is just absolutely amazing? She does. And she made us a little miniature individual beef Wellington that was like two servings. Oh, that's it was, great. It was awesome. I've, I've never had beef wellington because we won that war so i'm just not even sure what it is <laughs> it's delicious you should try it yeah well, no i would i mean anything that has the word beef in it um <laughs> I, I have a hard time thinking i'm not going to like it i don't know what a wellington is but i'll try anything once <laughs> just it's just beef and dough man it's like two of the best things yeah my brother came to visit a couple weeks ago and we made um like a, a shepherd's pie with Guinness, like a big chunky mm-hmm. steak with all the vegetables and the Guinness kind of boils down and it becomes kind of this great, just ooziness in the middle of it. And then you put the puff pastry on top. So if it's anything like that, then um, giddy up. I'm in. That's amazing. Yeah, it was, it was, it was really nice to have and got some of my favorites without, you know, having to leave the house, which was, which <laughs> made it, better than it could have been yeah sure well today we are going to discuss the book on grace and free choice by bernard of clairvaux um, and so we're using the edition that was translated and with the introduction by bernard mcginn uh which is a very good uh introduction very heady and in fact the introduction is about as long as the work itself um which is true of a lot of medieval you know, shorter texts, but um, there's, it's a good inter- intro and the translation I think is, is very clear and good. Uh, a little bit about Bernard might be helpful kind of just as we're beginning the conversation for those who don't really know very much about him. You've probably, everybody's probably heard of Bernard of Clairvaux, um, but he can kind of get skipped over a little bit um, as we go from Augustine to Aquinas, you know, in, in, the, in the kind of big emphasis of, of church history. So Bernard was uh, was a priest and theologian who lived from 1090 to 1153. So he's right in, in the 12th century, which is a very exciting time. Um, you have Anselm sort of at the beginning of the century, um, and he kicks off, I think, what is kind of a, a, a mini uh, intellectual renaissance. Um, so Bernard is, is very involved in that, as is uh, Hugh of St. Victor. Hugh of St. Victor and Bernard... Uh, got along, it seemed like. 
Um, and so uh, Bernard was also a monastic. He was the founder of Clairvaux Abbey, Abbey which was a Cistercian monastery. Um, and he was actually made a doctor of the church by Pius XII in 1830, 800 years uh, after, um, after his death. Funny enough, uh, in spite of being a doctor of the church and recognized by the 19th century Roman Catholic Church, Bernard was actually well liked by the reformers as well. So Luther and Calvin both appreciated Bernard. But as McGinn points out in his introduction, uh, they liked Bernard the preacher more than they liked Bernard the theologian. So Luther and Calvin both did not really like the work that we're going to be discussing today. But they did like some of his preaching, which actually surprises me a little bit, because like if you read his sermons on Song of Songs, which is probably his other best work, it's highly allegorical. And, you know, both Luther and Calvin expressed discomfort at allegorical reading of texts. Um, perhaps it's because he he emphasizes grace that they like him. Maybe they're willing to uh, to throw him a bone a little bit. But um, I just always find that kind of interesting. Yeah, and it's like interesting that McGinn points out it's really sort of impossible to separate the preacher right. from the theologian. And so there's this weird sort of bifurcation that specifically Luther is making about Bernard and his two modes. It's, it's, it's sort of strange. And I, I mean, I'm not going to say Luther was unlearned or, you know, hadn't read enough Bernard to know what was going on um, in both those places, but I feel like it was more selective Yes. reading yes. um for both he and calvin it's sort of oh he said things that i like about grace in this one instance so therefore it's sort of bernard gets the thumbs up in some ways which is also interesting because uh bernard's entire conception of grace as we'll talk about is intimately connected with a concept of merit so you can't really do justice to bernard and grace free choice this this entire um this entire concept, unless you get to merit, which they adamantly rejected. Now, I hate to, well, actually, Father Wesley, but I'm going to have to. It was uh, it was Pius the Eighth, not Pius the Twelfth. Pius the Twelfth lived in the early 20th century. Early, yes, early 20th century. Pius the Eighth was the mid 19th century. So, we have to get oh. our Piuses right. But also, there's a new society, Pius the Saint, Saint uh, Society Saint Pius the Ninth. If you're interested, you can go look that up. Please don't. Please don't. Please don't. Well, you could say I'm not very pious of a person. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Did you have you and, seen have you seen those memes that are like, oh, so you think you're Catholic? Name sixteen popes. Benedict. Benedict. <laughs> or name sixteen popes. Name twenty three. John. John. But actually, right. but actually, I had I made that mistake on purpose just specifically to see if you two were paying attention, and you are. So that's great. Which means we can get into the book. I think. <laughs> this is Father Was the teacher at work. That's right. Yeah, that's, there it right. Is. that's how you save a moment in the classroom. Ha, I didn't actually misspell that word or that's get it. everything wrong in the math problem. You all yes. were not paying attention. I think yeah, so, you're, I, so you're welcome. I think maybe one Thank more you. thing to bring up with the kind of background of Bernard is that he is one of, and he, he's sometimes considered sort of an early scholastic and he's definitely within the conversation, the, the sort of scholastic methodology and conversation. It's, it's early, um, you know, because we look at Peter Lombard and Philip the Chancellor and what's going on at the University of Paris. And then that giving, in a sense, sort of intellectual birth to what Aquinas is doing because he was studying at the University of Paris. 
Um, so you get this sort of sense uh, that Bernard is is attempting to do theology with a particular method. And I, and I think that's the biggest thing. A lot of people think scholasticism is a type of theology, that it, it is a systematic theology in a sense of its own, when in reality, scholasticism is more a method of doing theology. A lot of times it's sort of focused on the, the kind of conversation around theology, public disputatio. Um, somebody says this, I answer that, and helping to clarify through disputation, conversation, um, not necessarily disagreement, but kind of looking at the, the other side of an argument and trying to kind of make logical proof of it. However, one of the things I love about Bernard of Clairvaux is that the way he writes is really clear and approachable for a lot of people in a way that maybe Aquinas um, or other later scholastics just seems too dense. Um, and that's probably because Bernard is straddling that line between sort of mystic and scholastic theologian. So he, he, he just has a different idiom. He has a different way of talking about certain issues. But then sometimes you're like, well, that sentence was a scholastic sentence if ever I read one. So uh, it's just, it's just important to kind of situate him in his context, which is early scholasticism, certainly Augustinian in his foundations. I mean, as a Cistercian and all these things, he's definitely drawing heavily from an Augustinian background and a lot of Augustinian presuppositions with some changes and amendments that come from his scholastic methodology. Hey, this isn't thought out as well or... Yeah, I think I might even, this might be the hot take. I actually think that he offers a a better version of Augustine's theology of this, especially in this topic, grace, free choice, free will, that he, he kind of adds some clarity and he actually realigns it more with the larger tradition of the church. Augustine can kind of be seen as a proto-Calvinist, which I think is wrong, but you read some of his passages and you get why someone might say that. Whereas uh, Bernard is, is, is definitely trying to merge these two traditions and offer a synthesis in the midst of a lineage of patristic thought. And so I see him as being on this verge. He's not quite the scholastic king that Aquinas will be. And he's not quite in the same idiom as the church fathers. He is kind of his own middle ground that bridges this gap. And I think it's why I think it's the Catholic church calls him the last father of the church in the sense that when you think of the church fathers, Bernard kind of stands at the end of that great age. You see continuity with the church fathers before him, but he then kind of points the way to the development of, of high scholasticism and then into modern theology. So an incredibly important figure, and one that I would think that as Anglican, especially Anglo-Catholics, we would really want to latch on to as, as representing a beautiful... Um, a beautiful, not just synthesis, but combination of, of the tradition of the church leading into a Western idiom. I, that's why I think that the 12th century as a whole is really a fascinating time. I mean, Polycan calls the whole uh, medieval tradition Augustinian synthesis. But what he what he means is everyone has to engage with Augustine at this time. And they really can't explicitly decry something Augustine said. I mean, they can disagree with him on minor points, but but they do correct him. 
they just often do it in roundabout ways because Augustine certainly, I mean, as wonderful as he was, needed to be moderated by the subsequent Christian tradition. And the 12th century, I think, is a, is a really exciting time where that happens. Like um, like at the Victorine school, you know, they're certainly Augustinian. They're, they're, um, they're Augustinian monks, but also they're drawing from origin in a way that, you know, a lot of Western theologians didn't. And right. so it's kind of an exciting, I think, an exciting time, a time where where certain things haven't been dogmatized. And so there is a little bit more freedom of inquiry as well. Um, like the Lombard, for example, presents a number of opinions on on various issues. And you kind of get the feeling from him that even though these are different ways of expressing a theological truth, he's kind of comfortable with the diversity of expression. Exactly. And that's that's why, like, you know, again, uses that that wonderful Latin phrase. Uh, diversa said non adversa, which is diversity, not adversity, right? That the, the theological project at this point is developing in such a way where you kind of have a uh, diversity of opinion, uh, a little bit less dogmatization going on. Not that dogmatization is bad, um, but it's, it's, it's still sort of in an investigative sort of mode of theology that I think really presents the church with some interesting conversations. Things in Bernard get clarified later on by other theologians. And that's a good thing. That's an okay thing. So, you know, he might, he can't be good at everything. So a, a section or a concept may be the seed of something that really buds later on. Um, but that's also true of Bernard himself dealing with Augustine and, and other church fathers. And it's, it's, it's always sort of, I think, fun to read 11th, 12th, 13th century theologians because they're really engaging in the speculative project in a, in a orthodox way. I mean, they're staying within the confines of, of the church uh, and orthodoxy, but um, they, they like to be speculative. They like to say things like the ark was shaped like a pyramid. You know, like, which is kind of mind-boggling, or or things like that. And they're not trying to say this is the way it is. They're just trying to get at the the truth, kind of pursue deeper into the to the mystery. It's a good example that that doctrine and dogma are actually freeing, because you're right; they do stay in in bounds for the most part. But that but because there are boundaries, they can do the speculative work that they do. Right. And if you're interested, I wrote an article about that at Conciliar Post called Dogma as an Instrument of Freedom. That's right. Well, we'll have to put that, a link in the uh, the show notes. And it's interesting because that speculation was so popular at this time to be able to play within the bounds, which Bernard does in his um, his sermons and the Song of Solomon, which are, I mean, that's that's exactly what he's doing. But I feel like in this, we see Bernard is almost trying to be what we would call today just kind of a, a a boring dogmatician. I mean, he is just stating things as plain and as clearly like there's not a lot of fanciful interpretation or speculation, but I'm not sure Bernard saw them as different. Like, I don't think if he held this work against his sermons on Song of Solomon, that he would have thought he was doing anything different in those two works. They are just both theological um theological uh, uh it's the theological work for the sake of explaining both scripture and salvation and the life in christ there it's a united front for him 
Whereas we are, we have such a tendency to hive certain modes of theology off into camps and corners, and we don't like them to blend with each other. We don't like systematics to come into biblical studies, to come into spiritual theology, to come into moral theology. They have to kind of have their own camps and categories, which again, that's why I like reading these, these early medievalists, because they don't have those categories. Everything is everything because there is but the subject of God Almighty. Yeah, that kind of post-19th century over-specialization within the academy kind of results in the theological project not talking to each other. Yeah, for sure. And I think it, it starts with, my opinion, it, it gets it gets started in the Reformation because you start getting, hey, we want to be biblical Christians and we want to devoid ourselves of of scholasticism or of the earlier tradition of theology. And so you start having to do theology within your own confines, within your own methodology that is outside of conversation with the larger methodology of the church. And so then that sort of mindset is what gives birth. I mean, you said 19th century, it's it's German Protestantism that that starts this, right? Liberal Protestantism in Germany starts these, these different projects, history of religion, biblical studies, it becomes form criticism, canon. I mean, it just it just goes in all these different directions, apart from each other. But that's enough about that. Something we could have Doctor Borsma on to talk about. I'm sure he would appreciate to have that conversation. Um, well, let's jump into the work itself then, um, because there's a lot of really good stuff. Like Father Miles says, this is more of a direct theological treatise than it is uh, a sermon with a number of rhetorical flourishes. Um, but we begin the work with Bernard recounting a personal experience of his where he was talking about an experience, an experience he had where he he could feel himself being pushed forward by prevenient grace. So he recognizes himself, I, I would assume, uh, gravitating towards the good. And in that gravitational pull, recognizing that he's being acted on by God in order to to be on the trajectory he's on. So he's talking about this, to which a bystander asks, well, what part do you play then? And he ties this question to reward. If you're being pushed forward purely by God and nothing that you are choosing to do, then why would you ever expect to receive any kind of prize or reward for it? Because it's all God and not you. So in effect, this bystander is asking about monergism, right? Uh, if monergism is true, what does it matter for us really in the end? He says, so what do you think yourself? To which Bernard says, glorify God who freely went before you, aroused and set you moving, and then live a worthy life to prove your gratitude for kindness received and your suitability for receiving more. So this conversation then kind of frames the work. If you all have more about the conversation you want to add. I think that he kind of interprets the question. Uh, this is, if you're in this volume that we're using, page 54, paragraph 2. Maybe you are saying, what part then does free choice play? Right. He eventually boils it down to... At the end of the day, what's being asked is free choice, because that's the thing we have control over, as he'll go on to explain in, in a lot of detail in the next few chapters. And, the, and the, what's underlying the, the question is, 
a sense of natural theology and of justice. God does not reward unless it's due to his justice and it's right and meet so to do. And so God doesn't just give someone heaven, even though they're a scoundrel to say it kind of crassly, there must be some sort of fittingness we could say, which is a very church fathery concept, fittingness to God's reward of salvation. Now he, he says in here just above that, that listen, I replied, he saved us not because of deeds done by us in righteousness, but in virtue of his own mercy, which Bernard is going to echo all throughout the work. This is, mm -hmm. there is, uh, it's all by God's mercy, all got by God's grace. But he also is kind of stopped in his, in his tracks and says, but you're right, there must be a fittingness. I have to somehow participate in the salvation for as he says later no one is saved unwillingly i i think his thesis is sort of twofold here in this section if you take away grace salvation is impossible but if you take away free choice he says there's nothing to be saved because free choice as we'll see is part of being a rational creature and so if you don't have the free choice then you're not really a rational creature um, so he says then that the that if God is the author of salvation, our free choice then cooperates with the operating grace that we're given through consent. And he says this on the top of page 55 in our, our version, to consent is to be saved, which points us to another article that Creighton has written about Mary, right? The fiat, let it be done to me according to thy will. She is the model then for how all of us are saved. There is that sort of active receptivity. Yeah, there's, you know, we'll we'll get into this because he does it really extensively towards the end of the treatise. But the idea of cooperation, you know, that there's this sense in which having the ability to consent, like that voluntary consent makes us better or different than the animals and things like that, or the rocks he mentions. Um, but it also speaks to the image of God in us, and it speaks to God's purpose for us that, you know, there is a particular telos that, that we are as created in his image as, as, as loved by him. And as, uh, those who glorify in his mercy, we are being drawn into, and that, that process, which we can call salvation is one where our will has to cooperate with, right? We have to, we have to participate in it. It doesn't happen to us. We participate in its action. And it might, it might help to supplement that point just to point out and I, he's going to talk a little bit about pre-lapsarian and post-lapsarian adam but from what i can tell at this time it seemed pretty common for them to argue that adam in his initially created state was not uh he he had not reached the telos that god had for humanity um so there were things adam still needed to learn there were ways in which he needed to grow he wasn't ignorant because I think uh, for the medievals, ignorance and vice are very connected. Um, but he still had to mature. So it's like, I think, I think actually we get a sense of this when, uh, when after Mary and Joseph lose Jesus in the temple and it says he grew in wisdom and stature, right? It's, that's what it's referring to. Jesus is doing, well, 
I have to be careful because you could become heretical here if, if you don't say it quite right. But you know what I mean? Yeah, Jesus is, Jesus is Jesus is doing what Adam and Eve couldn't do. Right. right. He's, His growth. He's imaging what they should have done. Exactly. 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 And that's, I mean, it, even in patristic theology and, and medievals, you know, you get sort of two views of our first parents. You know, either they are spiritual neophytes and the fall is very short, right? That they're sort of infants spiritually and the very first thing they do is fall and there's like no time spent. It's sort of this instant thing. Or, um, and then this kind of in Western thought becomes a little bit more prevalent. You get a spectrum. It's either um, they have some, as Bernard says, they have some semblance some participating in perfection it's not there yet it's weakened it's it's not full it can't be full but it's higher and so the fall is greater and then later i think i think the way that i've sort of seen in in luther specifically is that adam and eve fall greatly like they they are this highly ennobled pair and the fall is extensive and there's a sense in which there, there's a push to return to the state of Adam and Eve, which if I think you look at the fathers and you look at someone like Bernard, especially in this treatise, we don't want to return to the state of Adam and Eve. We want more than Adam and Eve. And Christ is the means by which we have more. Yeah, that's a good point is that I think at the Eastern fathers emphasize this more, but it's definitely in the West is that had we not fallen, Christ would have still become incarnate because that is the means to glorification. The goal is not a return to paradise. The goal is beyond paradise, glorification. And you even see this in the biblical narrative. We don't return to the Garden of Eden. We turn to this glorified, magnified Garden Eden-esque city in Revelation. It's grown. It's matured. It's beyond the bounds of just the Garden of Eden. And the same, I think, is that's, a, that's an analogy for humanity, that we too are to mature and grow. And going back to your point about Luther and Calvin as well, they do see the fall as this incredibly detrimental uh, uh, marring of human nature, even beyond marring, almost destroying. And I think what we'll see if you've read this treatise by Bernard is that we are most definitely wounded by the fall, but we are not utterly undone by the fall. And that, I think, is one of the differentiating factors between a Catholic anthropology and a more radical Protestant anthropology is that humanity still in our essence is good, even if we are utterly wounded and have concupiscence towards in, an inclination towards evil that must be healed. But we are not, as I heard one Calvinist professor I had in college say, even you can do nothing good whatsoever unless you are regenerate. A sinner walking his dog is damnable because it's a selfish act. And I was, I remember sitting there going, that makes sense in his system, but surely this doesn't make sense <laughs> just on the, on the whole. Right. So it might help to talk a little bit more about the anthropology that Bernard lays out here. Um, and he, he begins by contrasting the human person with animals um, because he has said to consent is to be saved. So we have to understand what it means to consent. So what we share in common with animals as embodied creatures is that we have appetites which are necessary for us to perpetuate life, right? 
So when you're hungry, your body is telling you you need to eat. And so you better get some food or else. Um, and it might just be good that this is one of those uh, scholastic term appetites. We often right. think of appetite related to food, but it's really any natural desire. You have right. an appetite for um, for sex. You have an appetite for knowledge. You have an appetite for relationship. You have an appetite to have clothes and live in a house um, and, and other sort of it could be even more um, emotional or, or, or spiritual appetites, desire all, in general. But all are aimed at perpetuating life. Right. So you need That's a house or you need you need shelter in order to live. You need food right, in right. order to live. You need sex in order to reproduce, you know, right. these kind of things. So and so Aquinas those... will differentiate between the natural appetites and the spiritual appetites. But just that word I'm trying to explain is a scholastic, more technical term and broader in our sense of like, oh, you have a big appetite. You ate a whole steak. Right. Exactly. Right. And this is going to be different than, I mean, it helps to contrast it with what he means. So, so we're similar to animals in that we have these desires or appetites. We are different from animals in that we have voluntary consent, which he defines as a self-determining habit of the soul, which is, which is separate from anything that is coerced or extorted from us. Right. So if I'm hungry, I don't really have a choice that I need to eat. I mean, you could say I could choose what I eat, but I need to eat. Right. That's just sort of a fact. I don't have the freedom uh, there. Um, and I'll, I'll jump in, too, and just point out that habit is also habitus gets used extensively yes. later on in scholastic theology. But Bernard doesn't mean it that way. Right. Um, and I think that may become confusing if people have read like Aquinas or, or, or familiar with kind of his more technical definition of habit. Whereas I think, you know, in the introduction, there's a good little section on this um, where habitus here, habit is more just like a, a mode, right? A self-determining sort of way of acting, of, of acting according to your being. Um, so it's a self-determining action, we could say. Uh, that involves the will. Right. Well, exactly. and, and by, right. Sorry, I was just going to say, and by calling it habit, he's saying that it exists on a repeated basis, mm -hmm. that it's it's habitual in that sense. You're right. I don't think it goes as far as Aquinas will, but he's definitely using this word for a reason. It inhabits the soul and is something that we would do. It, it's, it's, it's almost uh, constantly taking place inside of us. So, so if you can consent, Creighton just pointed it out, that, that is indicative of having a will, right? I have a will that allows me to say yes or no or to, to make a choice. Having a will presupposes a certain amount of freedom or what Bernard will call free choice, right? The fact that we have the will implies free choice. So he puts all these things together then in chapter two, where we have the will, which is, I guess you could call it rational movement. And the will is informed by sense perception and appetite. And will is intricately linked to reason because the the will is often moved by reason though not entirely so and of course he says there's good reason and there's bad reason which is why we need to be instructed 
right? So instruction has a moral quality to it, which is common in the in the 12th century um, Renaissance, where they're uh, they're reforming the educational process and honing the pedagogical methods and things like that. It, it, uh, you can think of the Victorine school too in Paris there where, uh, where, you know, learning was a moral endeavor more than it was just a purely intellectual one. So as human creatures, we have will, the will can be and is informed by reason, but it's not totally dictated to by reason, which and makes if, sense. We, we all know people who make unreasonable decisions or choices. Right. And if, if it is dictated by reason, it's no longer it's strictly dictated by reason it's no longer free choice right. it's no longer really will because it's being operated on compelled by an outside force to itself so there's this cooperation ideally towards its fulfillment using reason and there's this sort of disorderly when when you know disorderly sort of exercise when it's not informed by reason when you make an unreasonable decision or when you choose something that's very obviously bad it's like your reason didn't really play into that right and it's on this basis then that he says that we can judge a creature a rational creature to be just or unjust right if we didn't have a will that wouldn't be a metric that we could use to assess actions that would be fair or make sense right so we, we can't animals. talk about whether my dog is just or unjust. right that's what i was going to say cats are always unjust dogs are always just and there's just no that's way true. that you that's can true. And those are just facts. No, I'm kidding. Is that you can't really, you can't, you can't look at an animal and determine if it's just or unjust. It only does what it does. But because of free will, we can impute things to humans, such as he calls it judgmental righteousness, which he means bad or good kind yep. of uh, conclusions. Which are intricately tied to the telos that we were talking about just a few minutes ago, in that to be just is to be happy and to be unjust is to be unhappy. Mm, yeah. So there is a, there is a teleological element to that. Um, but whenever there's necessity, you know, a sort of out, outward ex, uh, constraint being placed on you, then there is a trade-off with freedom. Which he'll get to later and talk about, all right, well, what exactly do we mean by constraint or uh, maybe we could say compulsion? Because, I mean, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but he gives this big example of St. Peter denying Christ. And he goes on to actually say, in, in St. Peter denying Christ, it actually was his free will because he willed life over death more. So we just have to be careful by what we mean by compulsion or right. uh, imposing of necessity. But in this context, I think he's meaning more like, are you hungry or not? That's a necessity. You don't have a choice over that. We have to eat. We have to, we eat. Have to we eat. We have to sleep. I mean, you could choose not to, but that's... Um, that you're not going to, you can't will away hunger or sleepiness. And this is where vice comes into play, right? So, so gluttony, for example, is a kind of overeating where once you have been satiated, you are choosing to ingest food in an imbalanced way. And so then it becomes, it, it ceases to be a necessity and it becomes a vice because it's excess. So, um, in chapter three, we begin to define freedom a little bit more in a little bit more nuanced of a way. So, so he wants to draw a distinction. Freedom of choice is not always the biblical 
concept of freedom. So he points to 2 Corinthians 3.17. This was a verse that was uh, in big letters uh, in the hallway of the of the main building at Liberty University. Um, now, the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty or there is freedom. So we're not talking about, uh, we're, at least Bernard up to this point has not been talking about the kind of freedom St. Paul is talking about in um, in 2 Corinthians 3, because what he's talking about there is a freedom from sin. So it's not the freedom of where are we going to go out to lunch so that we can fulfill the appetite of hunger that we're experiencing. St. Paul means where the Spirit of the Lord is, you don't have to sin. So this is not free choice, according to what uh, what Bernard has been talking about so far. Freedom of choice is also not freedom of sorrow, or freedom from sorrow, right? So that's where he, he's, he has in mind when Paul talks in Romans 8 about the creation longing to be free from the sighing and the groaning and the you know, the pain of the world the way the world is so it's not so freedom of choice is not freedom from sorrow so then what is it freedom from necessity freedom from necessity because if something is necessary it's not voluntary yeah so just kind of a summary he says this is uh page 62 that seventh paragraph or seven with the paragraph with the seven by it there are then these three forms of freedom and these become important for the rest of the treatise you really have to grasp grasp these ideas moving forward as they have occurred in us freedom from sin all right or what he will also call later freedom of counsel freedom from sorrow and then freedom from necessity the last belongs to our natural condition to the first we are restored by grace and to the second is reserved for us in our homeland. So he does. So from that schema, so there are the three kinds of freedom, freedom from sin, freedom from sorrow, freedom from necessity. He then zooms in a little bit on the first kind of freedom. And so, well, actually, no, I'm sorry. He goes kind of out of order in how he's laid it out, right? So he's he said freedom from sin, freedom from sorrow, freedom from necessity. He's now going to tell us about three different kinds of freedom that correspond to those three, but again, the order is slightly different in that he talks about freedom of nature, freedom by grace, and life and glory, in which he's tracing really the uh, development of the human person along their telos, right? So, um, so freedom of nature is freedom from necessity. It's what we all have by virtue of just being human. Um, it's why we're the most honored of creatures, because it sets us apart from the rest of creation. It gives us an advantage over other living things, right? So we're, we're higher than the beasts of the field because we have a freedom of nature. That means we're free from necessity. The second kind of freedom we have is freedom by grace, which is freedom from sin in that through baptism, we're given a greater power, a power over our own flesh, um, or as he says, power over spiritual beasts. I like that. There's a there's an allegorical 
uh, reading right there for you. Um, but even then, even as someone who is being perfected, who's able to overcome habitual sins, um, who is able to make progress and become more like Christ, there is still freedom. There is the, One has not attained freedom from sorrow. Right, people you love will die. Bad things will happen to you. Job, Job is a great example of someone who is, uh, who is has freedom by grace, but he he doesn't have freedom from sorrow. The whole point is he he doesn't have that freedom. Yeah, so, and I think the when you when you look at freedom from sorrow, it makes sense when you sort of logically kind of play it out. It being the direction, right, the point, the kind of teleological finishing point. Um, because sorrow and pleasure or true pleasure, happiness, true happiness, they're incompatible with each other. Right. So if you have true happiness, which is in the beatific vision, which is in the fullness of God, right. you can't have sorrow as well, which is exactly why we're told in scripture, there will be no crying. There will be no sorrowing. There will be no pain because those two things can't coexist in a uh, ontological way yeah. uh, in a lower sense in our life now we can kind of vacillate and oscillate between what is a participation in pleasure participation in happiness and you know the fact that we still live in a world of sorrow right this veil of tears um, and so I, I just, I really love the fact that in this particular section, he's breaking down this hierarchy of freedoms. Yes. Um, and again, I don't, I don't mean that in like a bad way. I mean that in a positive way that like the, the sort of natural freedom, freedom from necessity, nothing can compel you except your will. Like nothing, no outside force can make you do something that you do not will to do. That's how this works. <laughs> right. Um, and, right. And the issue that he'll bring up is the problem is that there's kind of this ground of the will. You might will, you can choose to do whatever you want, but your desire, the grounding of the will, what that choice is based upon, that's the broken part. That has he, to be and fixed. He, and that's what he says on 63. Even free choice stands in need of a liberator, but one, of course, who would set it free, not from necessity, which was quite unknown to it since this pertains to the will, but rather from sin, into which it had fallen both freely and willingly, and also from the penalty of sin, which it carelessly incurred and has unwillingly borne. So hence his mini Curdeus homo. Why the incarnation? Well, um, because Christ is the only one who possesses all three of these. Uh, he possesses freedom of nature by virtue of both his divinity and humanity, right? Because obviously the divine is free from necessity, probably in a way that even, well, definitely in a way that we aren't. Um, but also by being human, by having a human nature, Christ also um, would also possess a freedom from um, of nature. But his the second and third, uh, Bernard argues, that is freedom from grace and the freedom from sorrow, uh, Christ only has by virtue of his divinity, which I don't think we have to be careful because I think a certain way of understanding that could be Nestorian. 
He's not saying Christ's humanity was devoid of the freedom by grace or freedom from sorrow, but that through its union with the divine nature or the divine person, it those things were infused into the human nature of Christ. And of course, Bernard doesn't really have the immaculate conception the way that we do, which can help us, I think, explain that a little bit better. Um, and so he's 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 seeing it, but he's seeing it maybe in a in a little bit fuzzier of a way than than we would now. But so Christ is he enjoyed all three freedoms, and this is how then he can be our redeemer. He's done what we couldn't do. And that the fact of of salvation and and the sort of uh, growth in the in the supernatural life that humans are called to means that you know that old adage you know we have by grace what he has by nature yes makes sense right like he is our liberator he is the one who comes and helps you know he's the one who actualizes the healing that needs to take place for us to then have what is our fulfillment um, to, to push us, to help us to be the means by which we through his grace, hopefully participate in those other freedoms. But I think that we, we see this in Bernard that it's not just Jesus is over here and did it really well and had all this stuff. And so therefore he can just kind of externally share it with us. It's definitely through union with Christ. It's, it's, it's subtle in his text, I'll admit, but he gets to a point where he talks about the Eucharist taking the blood of Christ. And, and I see in that comment and what he's even just pointing out here, it's obvious maybe for his context, he wouldn't have to reiterate this, that deification through Jesus is the means through which we have to arrive at these three freedoms. They properly belong to God alone, have been manifested in the God man, Jesus Christ for our sake. And we only a, we are only able to attain to them through being united mystically with Jesus, which Bernard would have been all for because he's a monk. And we'll see even later on his monasticism shows when he starts talking about asceticism as the means of achieving freedom in this life. Okay, so so as we continue to move through the text, if, if we go to page 67, um, so this is chapter four, uh, he begins to kind of work this out, right? So, so when we make a choice, like, like last night, you know, my, my son made a bad choice. We told him to do something and he didn't do it. Right. If he had the understanding that an adult does, he'd understand that was a bad choice. That is a faculty of his judgment, right? His judgment has not matured. So choice is tied to judgment and judgment makes the decision of what is lawful and what is not or the assessment of what's lawful and what's not. This is uh, this is distinct from what he calls counsel, which has to do with what is expedient and what is not, which is also different from pleasure. That is what is pleasant and what is not. And I think this is kind of where he gets into, at, at, at least subtly, the point here, I think, has to do with 
the fact that we are not entirely governed by reason, right? Like we were talking about earlier. These are other factors that can um, that can come into play. Uh, what is expedient? Well, what, what, whatever might be most expedient, according to counsel, might not be correct according to judgment. And neither of those things might be the most pleasurable. Um, so the human person is always uh, negotiating the tension between those three things. Um, and our actions are the, are composites. Exactly. Right. It we, There's not that sort of radical simplicity. Um, there's this composite uh, way in which we engage with these things. It's easy and bad and unpleasurable or pleasurable, not easy and good. You know, like it has has all these different dimensions at play um, in the decisions and choices that we make. And he and he would argue too. He goes on to argue in this section that that we don't possess free counsel or free pleasure in their entirety. Um, and so, so he says on sixty eight, when freedom of counsel shall be have been fully achieved, then judgment's shackles shall also fall away. So you you do get this idea. Well, and he even talks about it, right? The kingdom is coming closer by degrees, which I like. There's that development that's occurring. Um, there's a there's it, a a line in this where he says it does so in those only whose interior self, with the help of God, is renewed from day to day. Yes. And I immediately, because I recently, uh, when I had COVID, I was like, oh, time to read Narnia. Get you know. Have something happy. Um, and it just, the image of the progressive thaw of winter. Yes. I think is 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 what scripture and Bernard is getting at here. That, you know, our, our, our will, our sinfulness has resulted in this freezing, this like, you know, the, the bitter winter chill. All winter, no Christmas. Um. But when Aslan comes, there's new life. Spring does what it does. It springs, thaws the winter chill. And so the interior sort of renovation that goes on through participating in the divine life is what sort of frees that council, right? It's it's what moves it into uh, participating in, in the higher good. So we're, I think, according to Bernard, then at a moment where uh, things have begun to thaw, but they're not thawed completely because he says, you know, the kingdom of grace is being extended. Sin is being weakened, yet we're still weighed down with our with our our souls are still weighed down by the weight of our bodies in effect. And, and he kind of fronts that whole section before he talks about the kingdom of the way in which we begin to achieve this freedom of counsel or freedom from sin's effect on our judgment is through ascetical practices. That's why I was mentioning earlier. He says freedom of counsel, they, he's talking about some of the saints, possess merely in part, that is, the few spiritual ones among us who have crucified their flesh with its passions and desires so that sin no longer reigns in their mortal bodies. And he'll go on later to talk about uh, through means of fastings. It says in this, in this one, wakings, but that's a vigil. 
uh, almsgiving, that these are the means through which we are actively combating sin in our lives so that our, our judgment, our counsel, is able to be won over into freedom through grace. Right. So you see, that's it's very patristic the way he's saying. I can remember some sermons by St. Cyril of Alexandria as well as St. John Chrysostom that it's through these spiritual disciplines that grace is increased in us and that in his language here, Bernard's, the kingdom of heaven is established among us more fully and that it denigrates. But even then he goes on to say it will never really fully be established in us be, until, how does he say it? until we have sinned no further and it has no more sway over their perishable bodies, yes. but also there neither is nor can be any sin at all in the body than immortal. So we are looking forward to the time when it is fully encompassed in us. So degrees of participation. And we get, we get little foretaste of it through contemplation, you know, those moments of sort of ecstasy. Um, and, and so where does that leave us then? Well, what it means is that as creatures, we have, freedom of will and that doesn't vary it doesn't go up or down based on how good or bad we are but our ethical uh our ethical status will influence the trajectory of our will so it's it's always there we always have the free choice but we can have good free choice or we could have bad free choice and the problem that he gets into then in in chapter six is that that, well, yes, we have freedom of choice. It's it's a freedom of choice that's captive because the other two freedoms, freedom from sin and freedom from sorrow, are absent or imperfect. Yeah, I know that I had a professor in seminary. We read this in my seminary, and he gave a very, and he admitted it, a very simplistic example of what Bernard is talking about in some way. Okay, let's say I put in front of you two... Um, a beer and a soda, or we could say, I don't know, Pepsi and Coke. You know, you can just choose two things. Now you have free choice. No one is constraining you and there's no necessity pushed upon you to choose one or the other. But why do you choose one versus the other? Why do you choose the hamburger over the salad? And that is what Bernard is trying to get at, is this grounding of the will is what's malformed because of yes. sin. That's the counsel that needs to be healed and pushed. Now, you can choose that like you might really, really desire the hamburger or desire the beer, but you choose the other. You have the freedom, but that is not going to lead to a freedom of sorrow because there's going to be a sense of loss and sorrow because you chose what you didn't actually want so only in kind of the eschaton do we have the fullness where all three line up but sin can be healed in us to where we start to desire the salad over the hamburger or you know the the not uh the not fornicating over the fornicating or something like that this and and this goes to a distinction that he makes right so creating grace or what hugh of saint victor will call the works of foundation lead to existence right god chose to create us so that we are Saving grace leads to what Bernard says, achievement, or Hugh will say our redemption. And so they are distinct. Hugh overlays them on top of each other because it's, they come from the same source, but they are distinct. And so what he says is that as, as, as creatures with free choice, we are willers. We're those who will. Grace then transforms us into willers of the good. Because grace enables us to do so. 
Um, or he'll say at the bottom of page 72, grace sets in order what creation has given so that virtues are nothing else than ordered affections. Yeah, so I think that it kind of cuts to the deeper issue. You know, you get into the, some of these debates, um, especially among like evangelicals at times, among like uh, free will versus God's sovereignty. And I think that Bernard's just cutting to the core. Again, he, he predates those debates by a lot that forget that the issue is not do you have free will? The issue is how can how come you can't will or even desire that which is holy and good? He goes back to Paul's comments in Romans 7. Oh, wretched man that I am, why do I do the things that I don't want to do? But it goes down to that there's just this disjunction between our will, our desire, and our actions. And he'll get into this uh, here in the next few chapters. Yeah, so that's yeah. the bigger issue. When you when you talk to someone, it's not anyone could choose not to sin, Bernard is saying. Like that's in any given situation. The issue is how come... I desire that sin. I desire life apart from God. And how can I be healed of that? Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, I guess listeners, mark your bingo cards. Um, De Lubeck, <laughs> uh, I think is, is helpful here. Um, sort of, he, he talks about the, the twofold gift mm -hmm. that we're given and, like Hugh of St. Victor and like Bernard here, um, the first is creation. Like God's gift is given to us in our being. We are, we exist. That's a gift. And that's a gift of grace. And de Lubac talks about the second gift being supernatural finality. And that's, that's his language for beatitude. That's his language for being you know, the, the end point of our telos and that yeah. grace operates in us to bring us to that point. And so we, in a sense, like St. Paul, like, why don't I do what I want to do? Like, I, I know this is the thing I should be doing, but I do the opposite. Uh, De Lubac, because he's a patristic scholar because he's deeply deeply enmeshed in the medieval scholastic conversation he's like yeah because you have free choice you have this will that while injured or sick knows it it, it wants to do the thing it's made to do and you need grace this is the this is the great beauty and sort of the cutting to the quick of what goes on in, in neo-scholasticism where they're like, you can't will that and you can't desire God because it destroys the gratuity of grace. And de Lubac's like, no, go look at Bernard. It's all grace. It's because of God's grace that your will now begins its healing, its thawing, and you begin to choose the spiritual salad over the spiritual hamburger. And it's grace because... Uh, it, it is gift at the beginning, as you said, which is important. It's grace that we even have a will because creation is grace. It's grace that our will is healed and it's grace that one day our will and our actions are in accord. So it's grace from beginning to end. And this Whereas is, I this think is... that's often a breakdown, I think, with certain people who are um, who are more on the extreme Augustinian side, we'd say we call them Calvinist 
who would just say that it must be kind of this over radicalizing or, or breaking of your will because our wills must be utterly deprived because if not, it's not fully grace. What's well, felt that's a failure to recognize that the will itself in creation is gift from the beginning. Right. And that grace perfects nature, that it doesn't destroy it. Yeah. And um, that nature itself is, is grace is what I was, I mean, okay. That's a larger Thomistic discussion. We won't go there. I, I think it, uh, um, we can cover ground by, by, pointing out that on 75 he says that we require a twofold gift of grace in order to achieve the kind of perfection that we are longing for right and that twofold gift of grace includes true wisdom and full power well why do we need those two things this is what he talks about in chapter eight that through sin we didn't lose a lack of free choice because a lack of free choice would be an inability to will but we still will so we have that, but we did lose the other two faculties, right? We lost the lack, we lost the free counsel, and we lost the free pleasure. Well, losing the free counsel means that we cannot will the good, and the loss of free pleasure means that we are unable to accomplish a good willed. So even even those of us who have been baptized, for example, who might want to do something good, might be unable to accomplish said good. So the gift of grace that we're given in wisdom and power is the medicine to those uh, to those uh, inabilities on our part, right? So an inability to will the good is healed by wisdom in which we know the good and desire the good. And the lack of free pleasure, our inability to accomplish a good willed, is healed by the power that we're given. Right, God working in us or through us, um, and so we uh, there's a way out. And of course, he again goes to Christ. Right, Christ is the man who's in possession of power and wisdom. This is on page eighty-two. He says, "This is where Christ comes in. In Him, man possesses the necessary power of God and the wisdom of God. Who, inasmuch as He is wisdom, pours back into man true wisdom, and so restores to him his free counsel." And inasmuch as he is power, renews his full power, and so restores him to his free pleasure. So again, that idea of intimate union with Christ being how we then are infused with these gifts that help us overcome the wounds of the fall that we have received. And of course, he does say those two things, freedom of counsel and freedom of pleasure, are not going to be fully restored until we reach paradise but we're by degrees participating more and more in those things or he might say he says it to end the chapter the more we have freedom of counsel which teaches us not to abuse our free choice the more we can enjoy freedom of pleasure which makes sense, right? I mean, talk about the the Pauline tension in Romans 7. When we sin, he, he talks about it earlier too, about how choosing a false joy is actually worse, you know, the worst, because you're deceiving yourself. And we all know that. We all try and fill ourselves with the things that aren't going to satisfy us, you know, the spiritual hamburger. I always feel better when I eat a salad, you know, than if I eat a horrible, you know, uh, greasy burger and, and soda. I feel better if I eat salad and drink water, but I still 
try and fill myself with the false, you know, false joys. Um, and so we do that obviously spiritually as well. So, so to piggyback on what we've just been discussing here with the freedom of counsel and freedom of pleasure, it's important to understand that for Bernard, as well as many of the medievals, uh, we are created in God's image and in his likeness. And those are two different things, image and likeness. So for Bernard, image means our freedom of choice, that we have free choice at all is reflective of the divine image. But the likeness of God is is the freedom of counsel and freedom of pleasure. So we cannot lose the image, but the likeness, he says, is accidental and can therefore be lost. So, uh, so Adam would have had image and likeness. We are born in the image, which is absolute, right? This is why, like when our Catholic social teaching season, you know, this is why dignity is demanded from any rational creature uh, and, and a kind of dignity that can't be quantified. But the likeness has been lost, and that needs to be regained, and it's only regained through Christ. So that brings the, us then to chapter 10. Right, and the way that it's regained, I think this is really interesting. If you go to the bottom of our edition, page 88, um, there's there's a sentence. Uh, it's actually about a third of the way up. To whom, in fact, could this work be better suited than to the Son of God, who being the splendor and the figure of the Father's substance, upholding all things by his word was well qualified for it. He's talking about restoring the image or restoring the likeness as well from both these standpoints. So he was able to reform what was deformed, strengthen what was weak and dispelling with the Godhead splendor, the shadows of sin to make man wise and by the might of his word to lend him strength against the tyranny of the demons. That right there could be a passage straight from St. Athanasius's the great on the incarnation that could be a line straight from Anselm. You see this kind of contiguous line drawn through the patristic to here. And what is interesting about it is the incarnation is salvific. Yes. By indwelling humanity. As I think it's St. Lancelot Andrews, St. Lancelot, Sir Lancelot Andrews. I guess he's a saint by now. Uh, Andrews, who's the, um, the, uh, the Anglican bishop at the turn of the uh, 17th century. He also wrote the Bible. He wrote the five, first five books of the King James. So pray for us. He, he said in a famous Christmas sermon that at the moment of his conception, Christ began purging from us the effects of Adam's great transgression. And so the incarnation in and of itself is this purgation of human nature. And just by simply uniting to our nature and vice versa, us then being united to his divinized humanity, these, these, um, these sicknesses from the fall are reversed and wounded. That's not to say that the cross is an unnecessary element in the salvific scheme, but that notice the emphasis placed on the incarnation and ergo, ergo sacraments and uh, all the Catholic religion. I, I, I ha I'd be remiss if I didn't point this out because in big bold letters, I have a thesis written across the top of my page. My thesis is about the sapiential Christology of Hugh of St. Victor and its effect on atonement. And this is a very brief summary of basically the whole thesis, right? Uh, and, and note, like we had did our episode way back on atonement theory, and we talked about how they're, they're really what we call atonement theories are not separate, but different facets of the story. They're all present here, right? Uh, Christ comes and is able to, um, is able to dispel sin. Well, that would be satisfaction. Um, he's able to reform what was deformed. That is, example and 
he's able to uh, to lend us strength against the tyranny of the demons. Well, that is Christus Victor, right? They're all three there, and it's all sort of one movement expressed in three different facets or three different scenes. Um, and so he says, he says on 89, wisdom is the form and the confirmation means that the image fulfills in the body what the form does in the world. Christ is the form uh, that, uh, that confirms free choice. And, and through his impartation of wisdom, then does what we couldn't do um, by strengthening us, by uh, restoring us, reforming us. But he also goes on to say, this is page 90, that, and this is where we were talking about earlier, that even Adam in his fall would have had to have been glorified. Because he says that, this is uh, paragraph 35, let no one imagine, therefore, that free choice is so-called because it concerns itself with good and evil with equal power or facility. It was indeed able to fall of itself, but could rise up again only through the spirit of the Lord. Otherwise, neither God nor the holy angels, since they are so good and they cannot be also evil, nor the fallen angels, since they are so bad that they are no longer capable of being good, could be said to have freedom of choice. I think what he's saying there is that a, re a, a mere restoration of our ability to, f to having a true freedom from not just necessity, but freedom of counsel, freedom from sin, is still not capable enough to lend us towards salvation. There still must be a superabundance of grace, glorification, that leads us to the fullness of perfection, which would be freedom from sorrow. The, the likeness has to be restored. Yeah, and this, I mean, Bernard sort of doing what so much of the Augustinian debate has done is attacking in a sense, you know, let's, let's be generous and say semi-Pelagianism, you know, like he's, he's making sure that he's emphasizing the fact that though we still have freedom from necessity, we've fallen, it's easier to fall down the hill than it is to walk back up it. Yeah, and I think actually uses that analogy. He does. He does, he does yeah. yeah. And it's it's a it's a perfect way to do it that you know the kind of the weight of our own body. And he's not trying to say the body is evil and all that kind right. of stuff, but the weight of our sin and our propensity, our concupiscence to sin, uh, the fact that we like to choose the spiritual cheeseburger, prevents us from being strong enough or wise enough to walk up that hill on our own. And so he's again preserving. The life of grace he's saying look it's it god it god is the operative thing here it's him it's he you know he gives us this gift this grace so that we can then kind of make it up the hill that's the point so as we are coming to a conclusion here i think we've talked through the the story right um, what are the implications of that story? I think these are what he gets to in the last three or four chapters. And he really states it, I think, very firmly at the beginning of chapter 11. No one is unwillingly saved then. And this makes sense, right? There is a kind of metaphysical problem that occurs in the in the discussion with Calvinism and Arminianism. Well, whose decision is it that I become a Christian? Is it my decision or is it God's decision? 
And what the problem with that is, is that it puts God's will and our will on the same plane in which they're in competition with one another. As if, if I get my will, God doesn't get his will and vice versa. And what that really is, is idolatry, right? Because God can't be a thing among things or a will amongst wills. So somehow when God acts and when I act, assuming I'm acting towards the good, there's not a contradiction in saying, yes, right? Both both are at work and neither one detracts from the other. So in our salvation, God doesn't, uh, when, he, when he transforms our wills from bad to good, he doesn't take away our freedom in so doing. He transfers our allegiance because when we have a bad will, we're pledging allegiance to Satan. And when we have a good will, we're pledging allegiance to God. So free choice has not been deprived at all. It can't be. Um, so, so, so the will still exists and, um, and we're not compelled so much as our will undergoes a transformation. Yeah, because to remove a will, that freedom of necessity or from necessity would actually be to destroy us as creatures. Exactly. It would it would totally take away freedom and the will would no longer be subjected to itself. This is something he talks about in chapter 12. And so uh, the whole the whole plan of salvation would be nothing more than sort of puppet puppet strings or, or robots, which some people celebrate. <laughs> but sure, it seems sure. to be a there's a still more excellent way, a more grander vision of salvation. And 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 what that does when people celebrate that is it totally misses, I think, the point of Paul, which is that the gospel is radically humanizing, right? It's not about taking away our humanity or our free choice. It's about making us human the way we should be. And I think that that whole idea, you know, that takes us into to chapter 13 where he talks about merit. Um, and that that is such a like boogeyman of a concept to so many people when you say, well, what do you, what do you mean? Like this was a meritorious action or through the merits of the saints, et cetera, et cetera. Like, well, that, that obviously means that God and he, like that you're, that it's Pelagianism, right? That obviously means that you yourself are meriting something, which means you've now placed a necessity on God to reward what you've done. Like it breaks down the whole system. Like what's going on? But merit is what we've been talking about the entire time. Right. You know, it's right. the fact that God crowns his own action in the action of the creature. Right. Isn't that, isn't that Augustine's quote? God, it, God, merit is simply God crowning his own work within the creature. Exactly. And that's, that is what merit is. Merit is this cooperation. It is born out of the fact that we are in his image and being made into his likeness. And God yeah, if you, revels in that. He loves if, that. If you say, as Paul does many times in scripture, if you say that there is a reward stored for the righteous or a crown of righteousness laid up for those who follow God, that is nothing but phrases that equal in this, even here, pre-scholastic terminology or Augustine, who's pre-pre-pre-scholastic. That's just merit. 
That's what that category means. But it gets it gets transfigured in the time of the Reformation into this, as you said, boogeyman word or boogeyman concept, because it becomes equatable with full-blown outright Pelagianism. And this is why you read the, the canons at the Council of Trent or the decrees, and they start explaining what they mean by merit. And I think any Protestant would read and go, oh, we got it wrong. Meaning we, 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 we straw manned the argument. That's not what they actually mean. And, and it's super Pauline, right? I mean, Paul talks about being the runner, running the race. Well, who's running the race? Well, Paul's running the race, right? So when Paul gets to the finish line, he gets a crown. But what is what what is that which enables Paul to run the race? Grace, right? It's you just take off a G and then you get what Paul's doing with the race. But anyway, uh, so oh, gosh. so <laughs> that would be a good Baptist sermon, wouldn't it? <laughs> oh, this is a this is a pun free podcast. <laughs> Not anymore. Um, I also have a I also have three points that are all alliterations. So um, I'm just kidding. Merit, Mary, and Mass. There, there's a but sense, no. though, in which, like, the conversation on merit sort of makes so much sense of the scriptural and patristic and theological data of the church that the whole, the whole impetus here is to be made like Christ. Right. And Christ in his goodness, I mean, how do you deal with revelation? You know, the, the, the saints presenting you know giving back what was given to them which was god's to begin with this is the whole point of the eucharist right right it is this it is this beautiful like holistic circle of gift return gift return gift return offering giving that's the essence of the christian life and to talk about merit is to simply say that God loves us and gives us dignity as his beloved creature, as his beloved spouse, he gives us his dignity. And so if I had to like summarize kind of his concluding point or where he arrives in his, in this treatise, it's salvation is initiated by God. And from that point forward, it is this beautiful cooperation of fully free choice and fully divine grace. That they are, they are kind of not just in a divine dance, but walking hand in hand, united through deification in Christ. So, in other words, in, in chapter 13, grace, the divine gift, is given to us by which the, the merits we achieve can be said to be ours rightfully, right? You actually have done the thing that God has commanded you to do or, or, or followed his will. Um, and as a result, then you, you get a reward from his gracious promise. And this is the process that he calls sanctification, right? Uh, in which those virtues by which in our present condition, we are sanctified by the spirit are developed in order that we may deservedly attain to adoption. So there's a, there is a, where, where sin is sort of a downward spiral away from God, right? Sin and ignorance, the more ignorant you are, the easier it is to sin. The more you sin, the more ignorant you become until you're, you're on this death spiral outward. Sanctification is the opposite, right? Through the merits that we 
we obtain by the grace that's given to us, we are given the reward. And as we attain the reward, then we become more capacious in achieving merit because we're becoming holier. We're becoming more like Christ. And so then we're we're working our way back. And I mean, working, obviously, somewhat ironic there, but we're we're so it, we're undoing the fall or in the process of the fall being undone. But not because the end is in Eden. The end is forward. It's it's even more forward. We're, we're moving past that beyond that. Yeah, I have a feeling that if this treatise could have just been published as much as um, that German monk's works were published during the Reformation, that I feel like this could have set people straight on both sides. I, I, I'm, I'm not but opposed to But he knew say, about this. He knew about he this. Knew. And he did. He, he intentionally disagreed with it. I, I understand. I think that it offers kind of a corrective. I do think that there was kind of an overemphasis going on in medieval Roman Catholicism around that time. There was a correction needed, hence the Council of Trent. But I also think that the throwing the baby out with the merit water was not good. And so, or I guess it would be the merit baby out with the bathwater. What wasn't good because it, it just takes away this fullness of what you said, Father Wesley, which is the gospel is a humanizing event. Jesus Christ has set us free for freedom's sake. We are to be fully free in him, which means a full cooperation with his grace. That is the beauty. And that is the essence of love. And I think, I think to kind of draw the conclusion or draw, draw a conclusion from the work. So we've talked about merit. We've talked about free choice. So in what way does free choice garner merit? And it's only one way, according to Bernard. In chapter 14, the only way that free choice gains merit is through consent. Only by consenting do we receive merit. And of course, in the consenting by our freedom of choice, we're then given the other freedom, right? The freedom from sin, which has to be grappled with and worked out in through ascetic practice and sacramental reception and things like that. It and he even goes on to say the ability to consent is only possible because God initiates the uh, the thinking towards consent in us. Correct. So Correct. if anyone wants to label this as like Pelagian or semi-Pelagian, they can get bit. And it begins with prevenient grace, right? I mean, that's the whole thing that starts it. He says, I felt myself not of my own volition choosing the good, but being pushed towards the good. Well, what was pushing me? Yeah, Jesus. It was only God. Yeah. And yeah. the saints. And this is and this is why we can say with Christ, thy will be done. Yes. Right? Because it's him, it's not me, it's him working in me. This is the whole point. Like that's and I think I think a pastoral kind of application for this is you can you need to tell people, hey, you you actually need to exert some effort. Mm. You actually need to like strive in your salvation as he brings up. Are you fasting? Are you keeping vigil? Are you praying? Are you doing these ascetical practices? Because these are the quote unquote consents towards sanctification and growth and grace. So, so to close, I thought it might be good um, to read the very last couple sentences of the work. Cause I think it really ties a bow nicely onto what we've talked about. So Bernard says, if therefore the willing is from God, so too is the merit, nor can it be doubted that it belongs to God 
both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is, in consequence, the author of merit, who both applies the will to the work and supplies the work to the will. Besides, if the merits, which we refer to as ours, are rightly so called, then they are seedbeds of hope, incentives to love, portents of a hidden predestination, harbingers of happiness, the road to the kingdom, not a motive for playing the king. In one word, it is those whom he made righteous, not those whom he found already righteous that he has magnified. That's beautiful. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect way to end the discussion. Well, that was fun. That was very fun. I, I, Bernard is such a great writer. I really enjoy reading him. And I'm glad we could talk about it together. Yeah, I think this turned out to be a hopefully a fruitful conversation for people listening. Uh, Perhaps a little longer than our normal. Yeah, right. That's right. (laughs) Certainly longer than than previous episodes. But like we mentioned in our last episode, we are going to be doing less main episodes uh, so that we can have higher quality, more in-depth discussions like what we did today. Um, So as a way to kind of uh, relax a little bit here at the end, let's talk about some things that we're into. Father Miles, what are you into lately? Oh, gosh. Um, nothing much. <laughs> Honestly, it's been so cold in Tennessee. And I know people who live like actually somewhere cold are going to laugh at me. But we've gotten like more snow than we act- we normal- normally get. And it's been not above freezing for a number of days. So what I've been into is chopping firewood and sitting by my fire, which is extremely relaxing. I heard someone say on another podcast that they always epitomize that the, the you know you've arrived when you're like 60 and you sit by a fire and just read books and drink whiskey. And I'm like, yes, I just love the crackle of a fire, slowing down, reading. So I've just been into staying warm and um, sitting by a fire, to be honest. The good life. The good life. Yeah. I mean, and church has always been hectic and crazy and there's a lot going on, but trying to take a little breather after the holidays before um, the great marathon of Lent and Easter tide pickup. Let's not talk about that right now. Not yet. (laughs) Not yet. It's too soon. Too soon. Father Creighton, what are you into these days? Oh, well, I mean, in a similar way, I haven't been doing that much. Um, And like I mentioned, COVID over Christmas meant that I all of a sudden had lots of time on my hands to read and to, you know, and I'll admit it, watch the Netflix or uh, or Amazon Prime shows or whatever. Um, but I think the thing that I've been into, and I think most people, for if they've listened to past episodes, know that I like Lord of the Rings a whole lot. Uh, excited for what they're going to do with the Amazon show. Um, I'm I'm cautiously optimistic about it. Uh, it could be terrible. Could be good. We don't know. I'll certainly watch it though. And uh, maybe we could do a maybe we could do a create and reaction show to the. Uh, yes. The, oh, we absolutely release. should do. All three of us get on here and just discuss it we'll see we'll see that would be fun yeah, yeah we'll, we'll plan that we'll plan that so i I've, I've been in in sort of lord of the rings mode a little bit re rereading tom shippey's the road to middle earth um mm. he's one of the guys when it comes to tolkien studies 
And so just sort of looking at the process of, of Tolkien writing it to me is as fascinating as the work itself, uh, especially sure. since I'm, you know, personally very interested in, in philology and linguistics. So just kind of getting into the nitty gritty of that, I find really interesting. Hmm. Uh, so, yeah, that's what I've been into. Very cool. Very cool. Well, for me, it's both interesting and probably very annoying in that I'm into Wordle, which uh, is you and every other person. in this. Country. I know. I know. Well, and, and of course, yeah, you know, you have to update on Twitter. Uh, the Sacramentalist Discord has been a place where we uh, often pretty much every day, the regulars will drop their Wordle uh, pattern into the chat and we talk about it. Um, so, yeah, I it's it's a fun game. I, I think they were really smart to make it once a day. I think that's kind of the draw, right? You know, it's, it, um, you that definitely can't... builds the community aspect, right? Because it's yeah, there's one the time aspect. you share it with people. It is actually pretty brilliant. And you don't you don't binge it. You know, you don't you don't like exhaust no. your interest in it. You know, a game like like at the beginning of the pandemic um, among us was really, you know, popular. The game among us, uh, Creighton and I with some friends played it remotely uh, since none of us could leave our houses. The problem it, with it, though, is, I mean, you can sit there and play it for a couple hours and then you know, you're tired of it, but I think, yeah, Wordle, it's like, I mean, it's 10 minutes a day basically. And it's like, uh, once a day, I mean, if, if you're 10 minutes, if you're not good at it, like I am, <laughs> does it sort of scratch the same itch as like a crossword or something like that? Cause I haven't played it. No, uh, it's, it's I don't similar. Think it's more so. like a jumble. Well, I, I'd say it's more like a jumble. Um, crossword is a little more general knowledge, knowledge. trivia base yeah yeah okay. and this is more this is more of just a pure word game um, you should just go I, play it creighton it's actually pretty yeah just fun. play it just play it drop it, just in the sacramentalist, dro drop it in the sacramentalist discord when you do yes yeah. yeah you both could be more active on the sacramentalist discord um <laughs> no i purposely get all i i'm trying my best to live off the grid this is Not my only there. connection to the larger room. father miles uh we're getting called out here you are yeah i know yeah. we are we are That's publicly chastised well, oh, yeah. well, at least Creighton's in a collar. That's true. Well, here endeth the uh, here endeth the episode, uh, listeners. If you if you like what we're doing, uh, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. You can rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to share us with your friends. You can also join the communion of Patreon saints over at our Patreon for five dollars a month. I thought today it would be appropriate to close with the colic for the first Sunday after Christmas because it felt appropriate to many of the themes that we uh, were discussing today. Uh, Father Creighton, would you pray for us today? Sure. Let us pray. Almighty God, who has given us thy only begotten Son to take our nature upon him, and as at this time to be born of a pure virgin, Grant that we, being regenerate, and made thy children by adoption and grace, may daily be renewed by the Holy Spirit, through the same our Lord Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the unity of the Holy Ghost, ever one God, world without end. Amen.